Yeah, I was making seed bombs. I was making seed bombs that night. And uh, mojitos, I think. I was I was uh, doing double shift. Like, if you can get the opportunity to host a party and host bar, 10 bar, make drinks for people, you get to talk to everybody in the party. And you don't need to do that uh, conveyor belt thing where you're walking around going like, well, nice to see you. Hey, hey, thanks for coming. No, hey, nice to see you. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah. As a bartender, you do get like, a nice sweet spot. Just enough conversation with everyone without getting dragged into... Because you can always say, oh, sorry, there's people waiting for beer. and then <laughs> sh- <laughs> Shuffle on. Shuffle, shuffle on. on. We've reached the apex of this conversation. Oh, God, that's some good soup. Mm-hmm. Uh, welcome back to Idea Grave. It's supper time. It's always supper time in Idea Grave. That's why I'm always chewing into the microphone. <sighs> Today's episode brought to you by water. <clears throat> Source of all life. Love it. Today we got Ben Hackman here. Hello. The Holy Gasp. Noted poet. Noted. Han- handsome dresser. In from the dank streets of Toronto. Dank got- October streets. This is Tori's Toronto. <laughs> <laughs> Ra- Ra- city is in the morning. Rainy days ahead. No, 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 no. He's Captain Positivity, man. He's he's reaching out. He says he wants Olivia part of his team. <laughs> I know. I saw that today. <laughs> Did you vote? I voted, yeah. Do you care to... to- Say who you backed, or you can keep it private. It's your I, right. I, I I voted for Olivia Chow. Yeah, I voted for that that communist coattail riding racial slur deserving woman. <laughs> yeah, that came up in in my office. People were were talking about how Olivia Chow's a pinko, and I was like, I'm a pinko. <laughs> and they were like, We don't like pinkos, and I'm like, Then you don't like me. You don't want more of me in the city? You're trying to... What are you trying to tell me? You work with a bunch of square-jawed conservatives? Yeah, but they're always a work in progress, right? Like, whenever you have a friend that's kind of leaning conservative, it's usually, like, that's the default position, and they just need a lot of hugs in order to get them back into the center, I think. Someone needs to run on a hug platform. Yeah. Get totally. them on their side. Do, do you find it surprising how conservative the majority of Toronto is? It always kind of baffles me. Cause it's going to get worse. I know it will. I take it for granted, though, because I live in, in such a... Like, when you're in, like, the dead center of the urban Toronto... Yeah. And you're surrounded by artists and cyclists, as if that's a radical concept. Yeah. It, 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 you don't realize how conservative it is once you start going a little north. When I And when I even, like... The kind of hidden conservativeness of certain areas of downtown. I was looking at the numbers, and Ford won like twenty percent of Parkdale, <laughs> <I know. laughs> a neighborhood that I would I would feel would be very very left leaning. Would vote for Chow almost entirely. Would twenty percent? Some of the people you want to help are are damaged, Brendan. Some <laughs> of them are also racists, and some of them are also cheap, even though they're broke. Um, it's a it's a funny kind of thing too because you know they've been saying we're actually part of the aging population like we're the generation that's not replacing ourselves so when they talk about the the aging demographics and like how three quarters of Canadians are going to be over fifty by such and such a date right. that includes our cohort so I think that as we see more and more conservatism it's because like everybody's getting older. And they have, there's more people with fixed incomes, and there's more people that are like, yeah, enough of all this city building nonsense. 
I just need to take care of my my own business. I need my property taxes low, and I need this, and I need that. Interesting. So age equates to selfish behavior. You think they say that? Isn't that the old idiom that like if you're not um, left wing when you're when you're in your twenties, you have no heart, and if you're not right wing when you're in your forties, you have no brain. That old <laughs> thing because your priorities change, right? And it's also like the people who. Um, the other stereotype is like the people who have the least are always the ones that want things like income equality and stuff like that. When when people get rich, they have less interest in paying a lot of taxes and, and building things. They just want to keep their status quo and their their um, high level of income and their property and stuff like that. Well, good thing we got a rich white guy for mayor then. <laughs> keep it keep it nice and even. He's not for afraid all those... to spend money though, <clears throat> which is interesting. So. Yeah, we'll see what this smart track thing's all about. It's, uh, it should speed things up in that they don't have to do a lot of environmental assessments. The tracks are already in areas that aren't going to have to, you know, they don't have to worry about pissing off drivers because they're just going down the rail corridor that's already built. Right. You know, I don't know that we should worry too much about pissing off drivers. Like you said, cycling being a, a radical sort of idea is it, I just don't understand it in other cities. It's so embraced in here. We have to fight just to get a bike lane on Bloor, which is like one of the most popular, highly traversed roads in that area. Yeah. It's super dangerous to ride a bike on very, very dangerous. Yeah. And I'm curious about what the, what the breakdown is. Like, I wonder how many people who own businesses along the streets are advocates of getting rid of bike lanes. Because that's the only thing that makes sense. Because you go to to places, like I go back to Hamilton for Thanksgiving, Mm -hmm. and Hamilton's got more bike lanes than here. And it's a much more working class kind of um, conservative place. You're right. Like a lot of the family members I have there are more on the right wing side. Yeah. Um, But they have no problem building bike lanes because... There's plenty of um, areas for traffic and there's not a whole lot. You know how like something like Blur Street has a ton of storefronts Mm -hmm. that I think the perception is that if they had less, they had bike lanes and less car traffic, they would have less patrons for the store, even though that's not really true. Yeah, it it almost feels to me like having fewer cars in front of the storefronts would almost open them up to being more visible um, from across the street, like, you know, just just creating visibility and sort of a welcome feeling in front of businesses. I could understand that, like, west of Spadina, but once you get mm-hmm. east of Spadina, it's crazy to be a cyclist there. And there's yeah. no storefronts. Mm-hmm. And it's a lot of, like, museums and things like that. Like, it's cultural events where you would want people, mm-hmm. you'd want tourists renting bicycles and, and slowing down there. But it's so congested and so dangerous to be a cyclist. Once yeah. you get once you get east of Spadina, yeah, and then at Bloor, it's or at Bloor and Young, it just becomes like, you might as well just get off and walk. Yeah. Like I, I, I used to deliver food when I first moved to Toronto. I delivered food by bicycle to that area and for the lettuce eatery when it first opened, and it was not worth any amount of money. There was no danger pay that I could get paid to have to be biking around maniacs all day. Definitely the fastest way <clears> of getting <throat> around, though. You'll smoke the mm-hmm. subway if you're on a bike going yeah. through downtown. Um, and I, it was funny, I'd have people uh, come up to me and they'd say, like, I don't know how you ride a bike in Toronto, that's so dangerous. And I was kind of like, that's kind of why I like it. Yeah, we it's have, fun. We have such a nerfed 
uh, society from top to bottom. Like there really is no connection to that danger that our relatives used to have back in the prehistoric ages where you might get eaten by a tiger or you might get, you know, cut in your hand that gives you a, an infection and you die of. It's right. like riding a bicycle through Toronto is one of the few things that you can do that you kind of feel that adrenaline and you're like, oh my God, you connect We're on the razor's edge. You connect to your ancestral danger through your bicycle. <laughs> I do like that. Feel the most human. It is fun though. It's like a video game. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I really, coming from a small town, there was a certain aspect of bicycling around where like after nine o'clock at night, there's no one driving around. So the, all the roads are yours. And, uh, you get used to that freedom and that Mm. safety where you're just biking and you're blowing through lights and stop signs because there is no one else around. There's, you feel completely invincible. And then you come to a city like this and I got hit in an alleyway in the first year I lived here, someone backing out of an alleyway and it was just like broad daylight. And it was a real uh, wake up call that this, this was not the nice wide open wide lane roads I was used to. And I, progressively got more and more afraid of biking here to the point where now like i'm not that keen on it i know a lot of people have gotten really hurt and almost died and yeah hit by cab drivers hit by streetcars. you know being safe safe drivers with helmets and with lights and stuff like that and facebook has been a, a really good way of of uh, passing on those messages because like we have less than six degrees of separation between everyone so i think that this probably overlaps like the the people that you know that have got run over there's probably people that I know that are the same person. Yeah. You know. And the, and things like GoPros and stuff like that actually bi- bicyclists who have taken up the cause of I'm going to bike around with a GoPro on my helmet and post every video of sometime a, a driver gets in my way or almost cuts me off or almost hurts me or like any indication of road rage. So they just get more and more popular and yeah. frequent. It's it's absurd that the bike is considered in the same uh, as a road vehicle, the same as a car, yeah. <laughs> not the same fucking thing at all. And they shouldn't be on the same surface together because the drivers, they don't distinguish. They have, they, they're aggressive with each other and they're aggressive with pedestrians and they're aggressive with bicycles. It's, it's all a fair game when you're, when you're behind that wheel. Yeah. It's unfortunate. They did a, they did an experiment. I think it was in Belgium. I, I, I want to say Belgium, but I might be wrong, but they built car-sized frames around their bicycles. I saw that. That's funny. Yeah, yeah to show how much space it actually takes to transport one person around. I've seen similar things like that before, of like a breakdown of Toronto Street of like streetcars, cars, and bicycles, and how many people you could fit into that same space with those three different kinds of vehicles, and you could fit like four times as many bicycles as anything else. Like a really dense amount of people to maybe like 50 with cars. Yeah. Which is just... It's a very strong argument that I don't understand why more people don't seem to understand why we want bike lanes, why we want fewer cars in the city, why everyone should be taking up cleaner, like reusable sources of transportation, even if it's just streetcars and not bicycling. Like, car motorists seem so anti streetcar because it <laughs> inconveniences them for like 30 seconds. They're practically the same thing. They're on. They're doing the exact same thing, and like a car is just as likely to inconvenience you for thirty seconds. So I don't understand the kind of specified hate towards streetcars. It's just the boogeyman, right? Like they're they don't want to admit that they're part of the problem. Like the car congestion is the is the is the problem. The streetcar is slow because of the cars that are on the road, right? Um, and they never they just want it's a good symbol to to avoid pointing the finger at other drivers 
Like I also think like the second it's it's uh, car traffic is number one. Second is parked cars. Like the amount of space that's taken up on city roads by parked yeah. cars is fucking absurd. They're just, everywhere. Yeah, They're wasn't everywhere. designed for that either. Mm-hmm. And then with the cabs too, I think that poses like a really uh, interesting environmental element in toronto because they're very very aggressive it's super competitive Mm -hmm. um and it seems like they get away with more like the police are less strict you know a cop could be sitting and watching a a taxi driver make an illegal u-turn and not do anything about it sure but meanwhile that same cop is ticketing people biking the wrong way in kensington market i I just don't understand it anecdotal evidence from from (laughs) Um, oh. But yeah, I, I'm curious about all the sensors that they've building it. Uh, they've been bu- putting into modern cars, you know, to help you back up and avoid running over stuff that you can't see in your blind spot. Right. I wonder if that stuff could be tweaked to the point where, if the car senses that you have a cyclist on your side, maybe it can it can have a calibration that's set to give that that cyclist more room. You're talking I mean? about letting a computer drive the car, which is not a terrible idea. Well, it, I, it, baby steps, right? Like it's yeah. it's already they've already got uh, systems in place for safety where um, certain models of of 2014 cars don't allow you to pull the steering wheel over the yellow line. It can read the yellow line. And really it knows that y- it doesn't allow you to pull into oncoming traffic. Oh, I like that. And um, I feel like with with a few with the same technology you could be able to understand where a cyclist is and force the driver to give them more room you know mm. because i do think that it's um a matter of fairness too like i think that it's 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 always been weird to me that like they expect cyclists to ride in the gutter like i think if they're going to be treated like road vehicles it should be one bicycle per lane and if you want to pass it you got to go into the other lane yeah or you have to, you know, make contact with the cyclists and have them wave you past them. Right. You know, it makes me sad to think of the, uh, think of a world where computers have to drive cars because humans can't do it with any amount of respect. It's just how we are though, man. We, do you drive Ben? I don't drive. No. Do you have a license? Have you ever driven before? I don't have a license. You don't have one either. Do you Jesse? No. Neither do I. Three non-drivers. <laughs> uh, so we're, we're not the best people to no. have a have a um, I'm, I'm, fair I'm, conversation. I have driven before. I'm just I'm <laughs> terrified of it. Yeah, I went to driving school. I, yeah, I got to, I got my G. What is it? G one or G two or something? Mm-hmm. And uh, it, I my dad was pressuring me because I was getting close to the age where. Um, it would expire and you'd have to start the system all over again. Mm -hmm. And it was Ontario had, had passed these graduated licensing uh, programs and they were about to step it up a level where it was going to be even harder to get your full license. My dad was adamant that like, even if you're not interested in driving, you should get this driver's license because then you don't have to worry about it. Right. It's going to be much harder to do in the future. Hmm. And I thought that that was fucking crazy because he was basically advocating that I would be a licensed driver who never drives. And right. Then I'd be in a situation where if I wanted to move or whatever and I couldn't find anybody to help, I might be tempted into like driving around a moving truck when I didn't have any experience. Right. To do so. You lived in Toronto your whole life, right, Ben? I have, yeah. And uh, 
I'm, I mean, living here, I've never felt compelled to drive. But if something were to come up, like, you know, you're putting an album out soon, and if you were to go on tour, um, would you would you consider getting your license for something like that? Or would you just hopefully have someone else in the band who can drive? Everyone else in the band can drive. Lucky. That's I, I failed my G1 three times. Three times. That's wow. the written test. Wow. What was it? What was what was it that you failed? Did they tell you? Did they tell you what you failed? Yeah, they tell you like right away. Right. You like click a button and then it says like you're wrong and then your self esteem is diminished. And oh. then you <laughs> That's so strange. <laughs> and I also f- like, I find it weird that someone was telling me they took their their driver's test recently and they're like, oh yeah, you only need seventy percent to pass. Uh. Yeah. <laughs> but you should know how to drive more than seventy percent. I feel like if you're driving around this big fast car, like seventy percent is not quite good enough. We should have even higher standards than that. Yeah. Well, I don't know because you lose. Like my wife right now is taking is like just about to take her her G two. Right. Another reason why I'm not in such a huge rush to get my own license. Right. But there's all sorts of stuff. Like if it's if it's drizzling like a little bit and you don't put on your windshield wipers, yeah, like, you could fail. Like yeah. If you hit the curb parallel parking, you could fail. Right. You know, like there's a lot of just little things that. Like in the grand scheme of things, if you were, you know, driving your cat to the veterinarian, probably wouldn't matter. But right to a driving instructor, very much matter. The thing that doesn't make me feel insecure at all is that um, you see enough interview or interviews with people from New York City. There's a huge population of artists and just New Yorkers, people who are born New Yorkers that don't have their license. Right, because you just take transit around. Yeah, you don't need it. Your, yeah. <laughs> and that that was a city built to facilitate that, right? Like everything is very condensed. The population density and the access to amenities and to other neighborhoods is really, really good. Whereas we'll you get know, there. Yeah, Toronto, Toronto will get there. But you look at a city like Detroit that was built around the car industry and how just sparsely laid out it and is. And doomed it is. And because it's yeah. so sparsely laid out, no one can walk anywhere and no one can afford to drive. And so the whole city is in like a weird standstill. Where it's it's impossible to get around. Their public transit is tanking. Did you guys ever uh, reading in those books about peak oil? No, there yeah. was a, a lot of books that came out in uh, you know two thousand two or whatever about the the coming like oil disaster and the post industrial stra- uh, stone age. <laughs> and uh, Detroit is one of the places that is kind of going through all of those motions because you basically have a situation where they've run out of money and. It's too expensive to to do basic things out in the suburbs, like keep the roads paved and keep the hospital open, keep mm-hmm. the 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 water pipes repaired and stuff. So it's just falling apart and j- just becoming, you know, going back to being a a meadow or whatever it was before <laughs> they built the suburbs on top of it. It's kind of a nice thought, just uh, just let Detroit grow over again. I think Canada should buy it. <laughs> it is a nice thought. I think Canada should buy it. It's right near the Windsor border. I think we should take it over and. <laughs> And put uh, put it under Canadian law with uh, extend Canadian insurance to it and stuff. It's like a bold experiment. If if Stephen Harper is 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 uh, is interested in all this militarism, he keeps on like uh, hinting at. That's the that's what he should do. He should annex Detroit. Start taking pot shots at the states. Just mm-hmm. taking little pieces back. Little chunk. Don't let him forget we burned down their White House one time. <laughs> one time. Never forget. <laughs> well, it'll, we can do it again. Canadian determination. <laughs> Where, when's, when's the federal election? When are we getting rid of Harper? Mm, next year. Next year. Mm. Trudeau mania. Trudeau mania. What do you mm. think? What do you think about him? Huh? 
He's okay. He's kind of an empty suit. I feel I I get I get really worried whenever there's a candidate that people are voting in because simply because he's handsome. <laughs> that they're like, yeah, he's so good looking. It's like, handsome people are better leaders. That's a fact. You think so? No. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I don't. I don't think so either. Um, handsome people are usually just better liars. They're e- well. They're easier to believe when they're lying. Got nicer smiles. A couple of things from the pedigree. Trudeau's. He's uh, Pierre Trudeau's son. Yeah. He's handsome. Mm-hmm. He's a good boxer. <laughs> right. Um, he used to be a drama teacher. Strong. So strong man. Prime he's minister. From like kind of. He's he's had a, like a job, like a regular job. Right. Before he was a career politician, no, I'm sure some conservatives Most of them would are argue. lawyers, you know. So anytime somebody's from a background that's other than law, I go like, oh, okay, they might be a regular person. <laughs> um, he was uh, brave enough. Um, what was it like three or, three years ago to say like the Liberal Party's going to legalize weed, right? And yeah. Tom Mulclair, NDP, he was like the 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 stad- standard dad line nowadays. Where he was like, no, the NDP doesn't want to do that. And just so you know, marijuana is much stronger today than it was in the 60s when we were exper- that, that That whole conservative line, yeah, I fucking hate that shit. It's better. So, um, <laughs> It's more fun to smoke now. That's, that's not an argument against it. It's just way more fun to smoke. I don't think it's scientifically accurate either. Like the THC is, is still the same. Like There might yeah. be more of it in the thing, but you just need to smoke less. Yeah. Yeah, that's, but that's true. stronger. It yeah. it has been cultivated like in a way that most of but the I mean, plants yeah. haven't but been I, improved. I think that the when you hear that line, the what they're insinuating is that is that the drug is somehow different. Right. It's the same THC as you it's just, always. You just been. need it's just less quantity. It's it's better quality pot than you don't have to smoke the giant use. joints that your dad used to have to smoke. Yeah. So you're critiquing like the spin he's putting on it. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't like I don't like that kind of. Because Jack Layton was pro weed, and I don't like that since they've gone with Moclair, who's from Quebec, he should be more left wing than Jack Jack Layton. But yeah. he's playing politics. He's trying to do this centrist thing where they're trying to rebrand the NDP as being a centralist thing at the very time when they should be going the opposite direction. Yeah, it's and very saying, like bring on all the European policies because that's that's what a large demographic of people are expecting. Yeah, yeah. Don't be boring. And, and it's getting a little embarrassing now that Canada is falling behind certain parts of the states where Colorado is enjoying the fruits of, like, you know, weed sales, recreational weed sales in which they're projecting, like, huge income over the next five years. And you would think that, you know, Ontario or at the very least BC would That's so embarrassing. really been, yeah, really be ahead of the because curve. Because before Harper came in, they had already decriminalized it, the liberals, yeah. and they were on route to going the same path as the Americans were. And Harper completely, you know, put the kibosh on that. Ah, that fucking asshole. Yeah. Set us back like a decade. On more than that, on so many things. I'll be glad to be rid of him. Hopefully Trudeau's got the muck to to get him out of there next year it'll depend know. on whether we're worth our salt you know like young people have got to open up their wallets and start donating and participating in elections right like harper had a 10 million dollar spending advantage in the last election that's the only reason why he's prime minister you think that's the only reason the though the only reason why it's i don't bought. know it's bought i don't think that there's some places in mid can mid canada that really are just don't really care about what's going on on the left side of things, I think Alberta is always going to be sort of in his pocket, and Saskatchewan's going to be in his pocket. 
I don't know. Those parts of Canada, I don't get. I don't get it. <laughs> really, that crazy uh, gap between Ontario and the rest of the country, which is sort of unfortunate. But I mean, you guys must have relatives that are conservative, right? They're not monsters. They're no. regular people. They just have different priorities, and sometimes it's cynicism is is the only thing that separates them. They just decided, okay, you know what? All the politicians are full of shit, and you're naive to think to trust them to th- to say to trust that they're going to do what they're going to they say they're going to do. Mm-hmm. And I've given up on this whole process, and I just want my taxes low. That's kind of the attitude. I get from are your parents conservative? No, no, no. But they don't vote, right? They don't vote. <laughs> yeah, not I don't know if it's cynicism, though. I mean, yeah. I don't know. I don't propose to know what it is, but you know, like I grew up in a Jewish community where mm-hmm. there's a kind of interesting cultural phenomenon amongst Jews, where on most issues worldwide, Jews are pretty liberal, and then there's just like one or two issues that make a huge chunk of them vote conservative. Mm. Not to take this into an Israel-Palestine issue, because that's a huge loaded issue, but like for a lot of the people that I know, they're going to vote conservative just because of Israel. Mm. That's the entire, you know, and it's the same way that the Catholic Church will say, well, if this person is not opposed to abortion, then like they've got my vote. And it's like these one single issues that can kind of trump everything. Hmm. Right. That's interesting. I never really thought about how... Uh, like a kind of grander national pride could influence. I mean, I, you do have to think about that. I was, I was wondering that about the mayoral election of, you know, I, I've noted, noticed a lot of the, um, the landed Chinese immigrants that I know, like people who have not spent their whole lives here. who have only been here for like, you know, 10, 15 years. They all have a very shut off idea of politics in just in that they've been so disenfranchised by their own they escaped they come here they don't care they're yeah. they're happy to be to be free and have the it's almost this weird sort of apathy of like the ability to not participate is a freedom in itself mm. whereas before it didn't matter but now you can not participate and it's like a, a acting out your freedom to say i don't care yeah and i was wondering if the like the chinese community would get behind someone like Olivia Chow. Yeah, and I know that it's not like it shouldn't be automatic like that, but it would be interesting to see how how they voted or if like the 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 voter turnout in Chinatown was higher this time around than it was last time because they had a representative candidate uh or whether or not they just, you know, like I I I'm I'm interested to see the actual like voting map of like who she voted for who. She didn't win downtown. I know, it's so strange. I'm kind of I don't know. That disenfranchises me. I've seen a lot of people post in the past couple of days. I'm out of Toronto. <laughs> if Tory wins or Ford There's wins, I'm gone. going to Montreal. Yeah, Hamilton. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I like it here. I want to stick it out. I think that it's not dead yet. But change is good, Brendan. See this big, wide country that um, that you've uh, been born into. It's a lot of cool stuff here. We don't. We can still talk on Facebook. We'll figure out how to do a podcast over over the internet. No problem. Oh gosh. You can take up. Um, you could become a crab fisherman. That's lucrative. <laughs> I always wanted to be a fisherman. Really, mm-hmm. it's not but, too late for either of you to, yeah. to be fisherman. What draws you to the sea, Jesse? <laughs> I don't know. You know what? It, it's it's not a practical belief. It's it's a dream, kind of like how some people have dreams of of being an opera singer or something. That's completely not practical. Like I'm not mm. a strong swimmer. Well, um, practical in what sense? Like. <sighs> 
it would it would require it's one of those things like if you had a disaster in your life like if all of your friends died in a plane crash and your house burnt down and you were starting over and you wanted to do something radically different than the path that you had been on the last like 30 years right going out to the maritimes and having like a very simple life like fishing or something i think would be um kind of a very like i've always liked the book old man in the sea and um i worked as a as a as a, a fish guy at sobeys for like four years <laughs> and so i like cutting up fish and i like eating fish and there's something about uh the maritime culture which i think would be kind of uh quaint you know you have your little so fishing cabin so you've you've given this some real thought yeah it sounds like like this would make you happy yeah it's really you're kind of lighting up as you speak but but it's it's contingent on everyone you know dying yeah you all of your possessions being destroyed is it let's just check in first is it is it contingent on on everyone you know dying like does it have to be like a job kind of scenario yeah like have you ever do you ever do those mind games where you try to think of what would what would you do if you got suddenly respawned and you were like, okay, you get to live life over again. Would you do the same life? No, I think you'd you'd try to do something that's radically different. No, like, that's where you're wrong. Like, no. if you go into a restaurant and you order the same thing three times in a row, you're going to try something new? Hmm. You're going to be like, I come here, like, every two years. I always get the Alfredo. It's always good. That's why I came back, for the Alfredo. Because, I yeah. But, like... It, if you had to do it over again, you would marry the same lady and you would like go to the same school. Well, well no, I, that's your pre- hair the same way. That's preposterous because like you variety. If your lady died, you wouldn't be able to marry the same lady. Oh, that's true. It's I mean, what you're saying is sort of like I'd have to be at that crossroads staring down the barrel of like my entire life being destroyed. Mm hmm. Because I think the emotional weight of what had just happened to you would drive a lot of your decisions too. Like you might not um, default to this fisherman life that you're describing mm-hmm. just simply because your life is destroyed. You might be too depressed to commit to anything. Mm. You might just become a bum mm. or just sad and like walk out into the sea and never you to be seen again. You should go be a fisherman right now. <laughs> it's kind of like here we are. We're talking about it. you're saying like if all these situations like gave me permission to. Like, because right now, essentially, you could go and be a fisherman, but it would call upon one thing. You'd have well, to be very brave, and you'd have yeah. to give up a whole bunch of stuff. And that's mm. a very scary thing to do. Yeah. But clearly, you have this vivid fantasy of what it might be like to be a fisherman. You should just go right now. Well, I also like what I'm doing. Poppycock. You'll like this more. <laughs> <laughs> I also like what I'm doing. This is just kind of a, uh, a Valhalla type of thing. Maybe you, you could go. do both. Mm-hmm. You could probably do you a podcast on, on a boat. Yeah, I could just go on a boat. Like yeah. that, uh, or you could summer. I did quotation marks. People can't see that. But. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I could go on EI. I could, I could be a um, seasonal worker, a seasonal worker that goes and gets the crabs from that dangerous catch show, right? And then come back here and do music videos for free. That's actually a very tempting lifestyle to me. I've always thought about that, but I'm all again. I'm very afraid of the uh, breaking of routine, like most people are, and so it's hard for me to get out of my shell. But I've always thought like it'd be nice to just go up north, and you know, like do geocaching for a winter and make a lot of money or just a, not a lot enough to get by for the rest of the year. That's very, I don't know. That's what I was recommending to Steve Chabot. I'm like, you got to change your posture in China, man. You got to become a completely different person. You got to buy a $500 suit and a watch and one of those gold iPhones and just see how far you can get <laughs> as, as a confident guy with straight teeth and a beard 
in China just start walking into the factories, knocking on doors and saying, like, I'm looking to make investments and see what, <laughs> see what people will give you over there. You know, just as like a, a role playing as like a, a video game type of scenario. Because he's already in the other the other side of the world. He may as well be the complete opposite but of not who just he is that. Now. <laughs> it's that people are expecting it. He keeps on getting a pressure from like Yan's dad to say, like, why are you making more money? Look at you. You you're white, you're in China, blah, blah, blah. And he's just like, Oh, I don't know, I'm not that interested. You know? Right. And he's kinda like struggling doing uh, tutoring work and trying to find work um doing marketing and stuff like that. But I just thought it would be funny, even if you just did it for a month, just see what, what you could do. Just if you had like that kind of laser focus just try out being a tycoon Mm -hmm. just give it a shot because you got a clean slate there's no there's nobody who knows you over there you can become a complete new motherfucker right well if if you had a chance to start it all over what's one path what's your what was your childhood dream job that slipped away are you doing everything that you wanted to be doing when you're eight years old i'm pretty much doing everything i've been wanting to do since i was maybe 14 years old yeah that's pretty. That's impressive. Not many people I know would be able to say that. Like for a long while, I wanted to be a Ninja Turtle. Right. <laughs> and that wasn't very lucrative, so I became a poet. Right. Yeah. I always wanted to be a pirate, and now I get to play a video game where I'm a pirate. So that's pretty close. Assassin's Creed. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty close. You get um, to fire a cannon. Yeah. You get winches. It is. It's making me think. If this were seventeen seventeen. I'd probably be a pirate. Mm-hmm. They say a lot of artists. Alan Moore says that the draw to see is is the same as the artistic impulse. Hmm. Yeah, but what's fucked up nowadays is that like back in the Victorian times, before you went on a boat to fish for whales, you'd learn practical things like how to swim or the knots that you need, and you'd probably yeah. write a letter to your family saying like, "I might die." But I'm off to find adventure, and yeah. this is what I'm seeking in the universe for my time here. Whereas, yeah. like, people go into the arts a little bit, like, casually. They don't see it as being a dangerous thing, even though it is, right? Like, right. you do have... Yeah. Um, there is, like, the bodies of, of failed artists washed up on the shore every so often, you know? Either just emotionally or, you know, physically, too. It's an interesting comparison you're making. I remember being, I, I spent, I don't know, maybe about eight or nine months on Laskiti Island. Mm-hmm. And there's no, there's no like uh, major ferry. There's just like some guy who owns like a boat and just does trips back and forth like every few hours. So if you take like the ferry to like Vancouver Island, it's it's quite luxurious and you don't really feel the ebbs and flows of the water. No. But on the Laskiti Island ferry, everybody gets seasick in a really big way because you just feel you're so low to the water and it just it's quite chaotic all the time yeah and i remember so many times just like lying down praying to god that i wouldn't throw up everywhere because <laughs> seasick is seasickness is is terrible yeah uh and just like looking at the water crashing against the windows and realizing how vividly explained every emotion could be just through the water yeah it's very profound i can see like I, I appreciate the comparison you're making between like that dangerous sense of adventure and plumbing into or plummeting into uh an artistic discipline and then mm-hmm. like spending a life on the sea because you're trapped you're just trapped with yourself and the ocean or the sea is so much bigger than you're ever going to be mm-hmm. you can't compete with it 
and there's a feeling of not being able to turn back. Like once you set yeah. sail, it's sort of like, well, I'm. It's either I complete this journey or I die oh along God, the way. Because yeah. going going back is just simply not an option. How trippy is it for you know someone getting on a Viking boat and just heading out into the ocean? You have no idea if there's anything out there, man. Yeah, that's I've I <laughs> that's always badass. thought about that the the idea that someone set out they built boats mostly for you know traveling between places that they knew existed, but someone eventually just pointed toward the horizon and said, "I'll find something, or I won't." <laughs> yeah. And then you had now, now historically, you have guys like Christopher Columbus who are like hailed Harald as like, he discovered North America. He discovered a place where people are already living. By the millions. <laughs> By the millions. But like, but to, to his, you know, he did, he did kind of break that barrier though. Just because there are people living here doesn't mean he didn't discover it for the rest of the yeah, world. Yeah, the two halves of the world came together. Yeah, which is a pretty amazing thing, and you, you have to give explorers like that a lot of credit. Of just You might not have found anything. You might have just been sort of like a failed artist, right? You set out to try and, you know, create your masterpiece, find that, like, one thing that's really going to set your name down in the books forever, and you just sail right past it every time. Mm-hmm. Fucking crazy. Seth Godin's got this great Christopher Columbus anecdote where Columbus gets back to Europe, and he's surprised because all the nobles are are kind of not that impressed. <laughs> and uh, they're kind of saying like, well, you know, if Columbus didn't do it, you know, somebody else would have found those islands. And, you know, um, what's the big deal? He's, he's not that smart. And so Columbus, like, wagers them that um, he can balance an egg on its end without using any other apparatus. And he hands the egg to the the other nobles and they all try to balance it and it falls over and they're pretty sure that it's impossible. And so like once Columbus has their wagers, he takes the egg on its end and he he taps it gently enough that he breaks the, the top of the egg and makes a little flat spot and then he puts that on the table. And then they're all, they all get it. You know, just because... Uh, you know, the trick is like obvious after somebody has accomplished it. Right. You know, like the solution is always clear. North America, it was impossible. And then it was possible. And everybody's like, oh, no big deal. You yeah. Know? And that'll happen with every single thing you do, like in, in art, in politics, anything. Yeah. Uh, the, the solution is always easy in retrospect. And then from there on in, it's copycats, people who will just like, you know, take that realization and like you know how many other explorers set sail after that to try and be the new columbus so just like oh he discovered a whole new world how many other new worlds are out there and like you know who's going to be the next one the sad thing is this this is the best place in our solar system so anybody who tries to do the same thing on mars is going to be pretty disappointed that place sucks (laughs) you know it's got no air it's got no atmosphere it's got no um, drinkable water, no liquid water. That's almost more exciting. That's oh, fucking crazy, man. Explo- think of the worst place on Earth and and moving in there for good. Th- well, th- think think of the worst place on Earth and take away the air. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's all you really need to think about. But people are signing up for it uh, without a second thought. They put out a just a hey. Anyone want to go to Mars on a one way trip that you're for sure never coming back from, and you are also probably going to die on the way. On and the way? Yeah, like, oh. 
they've never done that kind of long-term trip before. Who, how do, how do oh, they know yeah. they can get something to Mars? Is who's doing a call-out to, like, to the open public to it go would, to Mars? Pr- uh, well, p- private space companies, because now that's, that's the new... Oh, you can kind do of that? You can have your own space company now? SpaceX, which was uh, created by Elon Musk, the guy who like started PayPal. And so all. forget fishing. Like, let's... We should be astronauts. Astronauts. Yeah. It, it, well, one of the one of the interesting things that I've been thinking about is uh, a few different companies, private companies, right now are playing with the idea of um, prospecting asteroids mm-hmm. because they're very slow moving and they are built up of literally every kind of material that's on Earth. They have all rare metals in them. They have diamond. They have frozen water. Blah blah blah. They're filled with materials and they're all just waiting eight to nine months away to be mined. And so last year it was announced that people were designing um, prospecting ships. This year they're being built. Next year they're being launched. In 10 years, is it really that far-fetched with the money behind it to think that blue-collar workers who would do something as dangerous as underwater welding or crab fishing, something that they might die, will be getting loaded into glorified water heaters and blasted into space to mine you know, gold and diamonds. Well, I can tell you asteroids. right now that I'd be more interested in getting aboard the Nostromo and going out and mining asteroids than yeah. I would be at go to, going to Mars. That seems much more practical to just like sail a, a spaceship out to an asteroid and, and tow it home. Yeah. I it think will, that, that would be fun. It's that idea of like a practical space industry, right? It's not just exploration, which is like heady and hard to get people interested in, mm-hmm. like on mass. Like a lot of people, they have romantic ideas about space. I'm like, oh yeah, ex- exploring space. But when you get right down to it, there's not a lot, there's no aliens that we can find. And so there's not a lot of uh, sensational uh, material to get people excited about just exploring our solar system because we pretty much have telescopes to do it from here. Mm-hmm. Um, so it really like the prospect of industry might be the thing that gets people interested in space again. Like, Oh, there's billions to be made on, on asteroid mining. You just have to be the first one to do it. And I love how perfectly it fits into the narrative. There's this giant problem that's looming on the horizon where you hear those statistics about how if every, uh, human on earth wanted to live like North Americans, we would need four extra earths. It's just like, Oh, okay. That's pretty bleak. But wait a minute. There is lots of extra resources there's yeah. a whole there's an infinite universe of resources if we can figure out how to harvest it yeah and what a perfect what a perfect um time to be thinking that way at this point in history you mm-hmm. know because we need we need a, a narrative to bring everybody together yeah. like it's time for the star trek future there's all this like saber rattling and stuff and people are talking about will it be a fourth world war and stuff like that fourth well, the th- <laughs> some people argue that the Cold War was the Third World War. Really? <clears throat> I've never heard that before. Uh, okay, so whatever. Whatever. So, Another but World yeah, War. Yeah, there's like saber rattling. People are arguing over borders and, and ISIS and all this kind of stuff. It's like, fuck, guys. We're just repeating all of the same nonsense. Let's get this stuff together. We don't need to fight over, over resources anymore if we can start harvesting space. Yeah, that's a hard thing to convince people of, though. We need Ronald Ronald Reagan's uh, dream of an alien attack to get everyone afraid and on the same page. Well, I've seen some crazy things in the movies. It sounds like a pretty bad move for us to start harvesting things outside of the Earth. Yeah, you think so? Yeah. Why is that? I think we should just probably figure out how to get along with less resources. Yeah. It's probably a better use. It doesn't happen, of- though. Like, humans have infinite greed. That's one of our superpowers. No, humans don't have infinite greed. 
Humans have a lot of insecurity that turns mm. into what appears to be infinite greed. But people just need to be made to feel secure. Yeah. There are cultures that don't like rape and pillage one another. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. You know, die for a bar of gold. Mm-hmm. We have seen it. There are people practicing that way and hold that as a high value. Mm-hmm. But the, I mean, you, you, all you have to do in that case is convince a gigantic portion of the world to like throw down their ideals and well, I don't know. Give in. Do you really think that it's our job to convince the entire world to do? No, that? not personally, but as a as a community of people who you know, believe in the idea of a, a peaceful or at least a a mostly peaceful planet where people live within their means and there isn't someone who has you know a, billions of dollars and someone who has n- nothing. Uh, it's our community's responsibility to try and usher in through like generationally usher in a more peaceful planet and try and convince those people who are just like only out for money and only out for power that um, you can have all like the power you, you want like in here and that like the, the physical power that you're chasing is like really not, that important Mm. uh, convince everyone of that that's like every well i don't even know if you're convinced of it so start there yeah i mean i I feel conflicted constantly conflicted where um you have to sort of decide between like an idealistic world and a realistic world in that like i ideally i would love to live in a world where i could pursue my artistic endeavors and love my fellow man and walk around and feel like safe and secure in everything I do. And that like the chasing of money and like all these like day in and day out 40 hour work week situations really are just like useless. But then I, then I look in my cupboards and realize I have no food right. and I start to get it back into that. Oh fuck. I got to go out and get a better job. I have to like chase more money. Right. And it, it, I find it spirals out of control if I let it where if I think about it too long then I start being like oh you know one day it would be nice to like own a big house and like you know, some real estate blah, blah blah and I have to shake my head out and go no 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 it's not really what's important but but is it that's I yeah, yeah it's very confusing yeah, I'm sorry for sure no don't apologize I think you're touching on something really real yeah it's like you want to live a good life it's hard to do that when there's no food in the fridge yeah and that's what you know there's that there's a, a movement right now in, in Canadian politics of um, guaranteed living wages. Right. You know, they've decided $20,000 is the bare minimum for anyone to be able to live, you know, just bare minimum. Have water right. and heat and walls and food is $20,000. And that's like, that's even lowballing it, but that would mm-hmm. be a nice start. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what I meant when, um, when I was saying that I'm a, I'm a proud pinko. Yeah, that's that's one of the things that even if you go back to the 80s, people like Milton Friedman were saying that capitalism doesn't work when there's um, no money in in the poorest of of people's hands. Right. Mm -hmm. I always think of it as like a game of settlers of Catan. Right. Like the whole economy starts to break down when there's no money in the hands of of people to to spend at the bottom of the economy. So it's like whenever there's a criticism lobbed about how. You know, oh, he wants to spread the wealth around or redistribute the wealth. I'm like, sure. What's wrong with that? And and then you'll hear just regular folks will go like, yeah, but some people will cheat. Some people won't even work and they'll just take the money. I'm like, what are you worried about? 
they're just going to spend the money it's, and it'll go back to the economy. And if you're making something that that, <laughs> that person is interested in buying, then you're going to get their $20,000. Yeah. You know, like it all, it, it'll all work out. We don't have to worry about people abusing the system. Yeah, that's a, that's a silly thought of like, oh, so the people who are already like not working up to your expectations and who are dying because they're living below the poverty line, giving them money so that they don't die I, like dot 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 ellipses like i don't understand what the what the problem is so, like they're already not working yeah. so them being alive and not working it's well, not changing anything mind, for like, you if you think of somebody somebody who's on the very bottom of the spectrum like um malcolm gladwell wrote a book where he was talking about um this homeless man in chicago i think they ran some uh, numbers based on the amount of times that he had been admitted to the emergency room <laughs> mm-hmm. and he ended up being they called like million dollar Jimmy or something like that yeah. because he was costing the city a million dollars a year with all that. Yeah. A politician, a conservative politician actually made the argument that like you can put this guy in an apartment and give him a social worker and pay him uh, a wage and that'll be cheaper for the city than to, to keep on going the status quo. Right. And I kind of feel that way about I'm I'm kind of suspicious that there would be a return on the investment. Like I think that people like you, a lot of people that I've met who are like working artists, mm-hmm. I think if they didn't have to like stress so much about like the bare minimum of being able to pay rent and things, right? I think that there would be artistic returns that would come from that. There'd be more music made, there'd be more plays put on, culture would kind of bloom i don't know Abs- I think, no absolutely it's debatable whether or not that benefits the economy though yeah like we're seeing a lot of how i mean this will be the first year where no record has gone platinum mm-hmm. so i mean if perhaps somebody's making a film there's probably quite a bit of money we might even argue that like a high-end play or an opera or musical or something like that might bring in money but there's so many other art forms that are just intrinsically not going to generate yeah, profit. I don't Literature. so much mean GDP though. I mean, like, the, even if you don't pay for something, it's still a form of wealth. Like when you have access to um, a, a giant library of music or a giant library of movies, or there's free plays going down in the park, that's a form of wealth in your city. I consider it, like, right, even yeah. if you're not generating money with it. I think that's that's an interesting thing where we need to start to separate music and and art in general from profit as like those things need to go hand in hand like art shouldn't happen if it's not profitable yeah and um that right. like really entertainment is so important to everyone in, in a, a world where everyone carries around their smartphones and are like intrinsically linked to their media and to their entertainment um it just makes sense that there should be more of it and we should be encouraging the creation of original content we should be funding artists which is like you know why when grants come around and people finally have a bit of breathing room to do what they want to do it's good for everyone because then we can see what that person is actually capable of Mm -hmm. rather than seeing a slightly watered down version where they are like physically tired or mentally tired from having to do things that they hate doing and do things that just make them genuinely feel uncreative and feel uninspired it's a really difficult argument to make though I agree with everything you're saying, mm-hmm. but I can't fathom a, of a way of explaining. I mean, you're essentially like trying to convince. Let me start the sentence again. You're essentially trying to uh, encourage people who are 
predominantly interested in money, profit, right, uh, creature comforts, resources, et cetera, et cetera, uh, to like kind of take off the hat that exp- that helps them understand like society in a kind of nuts and bolts way and start understanding it in like a mystical dream perspective right. way. It's like, it's a totally different realm and the, the two worlds don't use the same language. They don't mm-hmm. use the same filter to comprehend the world. But there's gotta be common ground though, right? I mean, well, yeah, the common ground is basic humanity. We yeah. all need art to live music, TV, even just like, you know, mo- a lot of people who are, who like, you know, money chasers or whatever air quotes over that. Um, they, you know, they rely on TV as a big part of their unwinding end of the day, or at least previous generations. I'm not sure how, how the current generation really relies on TV. But for years, for like 40 years, it was the the this routine of like I, you work and then you earn your relaxation time, which for most families meant everyone gathers around the TV and watches their favorite programs. You could just make an argument to someone who, who doesn't really, who is not invested in the artistic community on a very basic level and say, well, you like TV, right? And you like when good shows are on TV. Well, we could encourage people who are good writers who are starving and not making any money to write TV shows and not feel afraid to take that endeavor on. And yeah. who knows, maybe they'll write your favorite TV show. The funny thing is, uh, of the people that I know that do watch television, none of them like good television shows. <laughs> Purposely, because like you said, the, the point of coming home is to unwind and turn your brain off. So they want something dumb purposely. They want to watch Bachelorette, something they don't have to think about. Oh, that's the good shows are, are too much like real life. There's It's bringing up stress. It's bringing up emotions. Just want to be able to go zen. That's scary. Mm-hmm. Well, Perfect Strangers, Full House, uh, Big Bang Theory. Um, I tried to watch a few uh, Full House episodes recently because my wife grew up, grew up without cable, so there was all these references that she wasn't catching. And I said, "You should probably see an episode of Full House." <laughs> I think they just put it on Netflix or something too recently because oh, yeah, a lot not. of people are talking it, about Full House. It, it was it, it was unwatchable. Yeah, it's terrible. Like she got really into it, but I was like, I can't believe I like came home religiously after school and watched this. It's mm-hmm. so bad. Yeah. I had a little brother and sister that would watch Full House, and that was kind of like a step towards divorcing television. <laughs> I just remember feeling like very, very aware of the whole the whole uh, ritual, like just watching them stare at it, and how like nobody was really laughing, and that you got like this <laughs> creepy laugh track going, and. The repetitiveness of it, how like there's catchphrases, like every every episode you're just waiting for Michelle to say you got it, dude. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> Stephanie to say how rude. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's like that's a that's a weird aspect of of 80s television where I find like 80s to like early 90s television, especially stuff like Saved by the Bell that our generation really tends to like uh, latch onto and champion as like one of these great shows no, from our no, childhood. No, no, no. It's like you watch an episode of Saved by the Bell and you're like, this is absolute garbage Screech was okay <laughs> the couple episodes that he had a robot that was okay <laughs> yeah but though even the, even that is like uh the viewership is waning get toss a robot in there they're just like picking stuff out of a hat and being like okay caffeine pill addiction i know but yeah. it's, like, it's like it's like a pixie stick right you give a pixie stick to like a six-year-old and they're like a pig and shit yeah they love it. but if i had a pixie stick now like i would be like my teeth hurt 
I feel itchy. Like, Why am I eating just sugar? Yeah, it's just a different <laughs> sensibility. Like when you're younger, you can, you know, to kind of extend the metaphor, you can digest a lot more sugar and like say yeah. by the bell or full uh, house. I don't think it has to be that way, though. I, I think that it, they're just creatures of habit because Adventure Time is one of the best shows ever like to anybody and that's a kid's show it's very yeah it's it very progressive it doesn't need to be bad i think that no oh, fuck like batman in the animated series that's one of the best shows yeah i mean they're, they're definitely smart it's on at the same time smart kids tv shows and or family friendly shows which i i think you know th- that's I, I would encourage there to be more of those because kids aren't dumb kids don't need dumbed down content um, I remember just as a kid seeing things that I would like I should not have seen like I definitely saw Pink Floyd the wall like the movie my brother showed it to me when I was maybe like six or seven years old <laughs> at a time where I like I could not obviously understand the intricacies of what was going on so in this movie, but, but I did I did grasp it like I knew yeah. it was going on I took things from it even at that age that I remember now um, maybe a little bit of a blunt life lesson for a movie like that but that just what I'm trying to say is that kids content could be made to be much smarter and much more like in depth for sure but i do get what you're saying it is easy for kids to swallow just like sugar you know there's an incredible essay by isaac basheva singer that he includes in the in the forward to his collected children's stories and he says you know i was writing the turn of the century and i was writing in yiddish i was writing in a language that was if not already completely dead like totally on its way out Mm mm-hmm and which means that I wasn't writing for like, an, like there weren't young people being born speaking Yiddish. Like mm-hmm. that population was actively shrinking. And yet they translated it into, you know, 50 languages and stories that are taking place in the 1880s, 1890s in Polish shtetls were of interest to people, children specifically in mm-hmm. South America and China and Australia, all over the world. Children were like really eating this stuff up. And he was saying, you know, when you look at children's literature or children's programming or whatever today, you see a number of things that really, um, like, provide a deficit for children. One, they're devoid of culture because everything is hyper afraid of being non-PC. So everything is tokenized and nothing belongs to anything except for this kind of Benetton ad of how people should always be represented. But it's like everyone being represented in a vacuum. Mm -hmm. The second issue is that things are prematurely resolved. So all conflicts don't actually go through... Uh, the necessary rounds that would demonstrate an array of human emotion and show people suffering, attempting to resolve things, failing, trying different things. And the cognitive repercussions of that is that cause and effect, um, like children's comprehension of cause and effect today is arguably worse than what it would have been 60, 70, 100 years ago. Right. Yeah. Specifically because of a, a breakdown in storytelling and and conflict being resolved too prematurely. And I think it's 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 counterintuitive, um, and I think it's it's from a patronizing writing staff that thinks children are stupid. Yeah. But one of the first things that you pick up on if you spend a lot of time with kids is that they have an innate sense of justice, like right off the bat, mm-hmm. and they can understand kind of um, human interaction at a more sophisticated level than we give them credit for. Yeah. So, I, but I that's think that the writing needs to be completely pablum. No, and, but that's not to say just like if you get to them young enough, like with this inane bullshit, something like you know, Pokemon for <laughs> say, which is like you know, there's probably in that in that show in that original show, I can't really remember anything about it, but I'm sure there's like 
lessons about friendship and blah, 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 blah. There's probably some morality to that show, but it, it, it is tertiary to the main goal of selling kids merchandise and getting to them as young as you possibly can because like that same idea of like a writer staff sitting around going kids are stupid if we make 150 of these like slightly varied animals we make cards and action figures that's 150 different things they have to collect and buy that they'll bother their parents I'm to kind get. of on team Pokemon so I would take the opposite side I think that one thing it does have going for it is I like that it teaches kids about evolution I think that okay. that's that's it's added something to the canon that I haven't seen at anywhere else at the time. But it also... Like, the idea that, like, characters can start as, like, being simple and limited, and then by exploiting a niche can expand into a more powerful kind of thing, I think is a... It's like a subtle lesson, like, even if the, the plots of the episodes are simple. Right. It's like a non-scientific approach to evolution of just saying, hey, like... Things things are not always stagnant. Things evolve. Things change. Well, I don't because of their environment and experience. Yeah, I don't think it's non-scientific. It's just perhaps crudely scientific. Right. Okay. Mm-hmm. That's fair. You know, like I'm kind of interested in taking what you're saying back to a point that we were making a bit ago, just about uh, like how difficult it is to be an artist and then come home and see that there's no food in your in your fridge or whatever. Right. You know, I think of like it as a great admirer of animation, mm-hmm. I, I know how slow the art discipline is and how bloody expensive it is to produce mm-hmm. anything like of real aesthetic value. Right. So you do see a lot of probably arguably beginning with the kind of Ninja Turtle stuff. Cause that all grew out of a desire to merchandise, mm-hmm. but like that enabled really fun programming and not everybody has this giant empire like Walt Disney where they can, you know, siphon the amount of funds in it to right. make a feature. Blindly fund yeah. projects. And so, like, they're really, in a perfect, in, like, a true communist society, there would be a lot more cartoons because it would be, like, <laughs> <laughs> like it's a good... It's labor-intensive. It's yeah. so labor-intensive, and it's so bloody expensive. I think, what is it, like, an episode of The Simpsons takes, like, eight or nine months? Like, one episode. It. I don't get why they're still doing traditional animation. On the well, Simpsons. they're not. When you look at The Simpsons now compared to what... Like, so much of it is just, like computerized yeah, yeah. yeah it looks totally different the, uh, but then i i don't understand why the simpsons could take like eight or nine months to complete an episode where it seems like the south park crew they do it in a week they do it in a week yeah, there's a documentary crazy. about how they somehow pull off an episode a week they they, they write well, animate everything is voice. intentionally two-dimensional right right like the animation is significantly cruder right and they've had they've had it locked down in that like crudeness since the beginning yeah, it's basically. a clever business model frankly yeah yeah everything was just uh, cardboard like colored cardboard construction cutouts. paper, construction paper yeah, right yeah. that's what it's called it's looking for that word construction paper I lo- it, it makes it funnier huh what by being crude by being crude yeah money kills comedy is the, <laughs> is the adage yeah. that's an interesting thought thinking about <laughs> the simpsons i i was thinking about this uh, we may have talked about this before but um the the addition of money into that show not even just strictly from a funding perspective of like how much money goes into making the show but the show used to be about a family that didn't have any money 
that was sort of like those people who are coming home to not they're mm-hmm. not being enough that, food that in the cupboard Gen X yeah and you know like struggling they want to buy a new TV they don't have enough money to do it they need a new air conditioner they don't have enough money to do it a lot of these episodes are kind of predicated on like there's a financial problem mm-hmm. in the house and Homer works a shitty job at a nuclear plant and he's just trying to like provide for his family mm-hmm. single income household it eventually got to this point where the Simpsons turned around and was just about a family with unlimited money that never had to go to work like Homer doesn't have a job or he has 150 different jobs over the course of like three seasons it becomes a run-on joke when the last time you go into work dad yeah and and it was there where like you can almost see the comedy start to fail because it's like that uh, it's hard to relate to someone with infinite money yeah sure you realize that like the second you if you want an education in class like just start writing fiction because you realize there are physical limitations to every single character Mm -hmm. you know I remember when I was younger, I'd look at like Friends, the television show, and just not quite understand like what these people did for a living that they could afford such large homes. Right, Ross is a paleontologist. He's like the only person, though. <laughs> yeah, you know. So you start writing a story, and you very quickly realize, okay, I need to know what this person does for a living. Mm-hmm. So their apartment or their house or whatever needs to reflect that. I want this person to go. You know, like they're being. They're being chased. Do they have the money to go to get into a cab? They might not. Right. Right. Like there's all these physical limitations that that come into place the second you start considering class. So if you throw class out the window from a storytelling perspective, you can do anything you want, which is probably why still the majority of stories are are about wealthier people. We yeah. still love looking at stories about kings and queens and princes and princesses yeah. because you can do anything in those stories. There's no there's no wrong. Yeah. And even something like. Uh, like arrested development you know it, it a lot of its flaws were in that it wrote characters that were on an emotional level for some people relatable but from like a life perspective just like a rich family that, that were very very unrelatable for the tv viewing public the people who are watching fox at that time of night were not interested in a story about like rich people and it's like another it's one of those things that i also think is a is a slight flaw and a reason why wes anderson sort of stays in that that niche indie filmmaking where like his his movies are big but they're not blockbuster michael bay big despite the fact that they're like cinematic masterpieces is that he like continuously writes about richer and richer more unreachable stratas of wealth um, in all of his characters, starting from the very beginning, Bottle Rocket's about rich people. Rushmore's about rich people. They get richer and richer. Royal Tannenbaum's about rich people. Do you people. think that's why he's not bigger? Yeah, I think I think he that he like there is that that idea of like okay i can tell any story i want to tell about rich people because they don't have to worry about like getting into a cab or paying money to get on this train across india or like blah 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 blah. they don't have to worry about work they can be professional tennis players they can do all this but in that you also create um a gap between the product and the consumer where like none of the people who are going to see this movie have that kind of freedom and it's going to be very hard for them to suspend their disbelief and relate to these characters in a way that's going to be significant compared to like if you made a movie about a blue collar guy that's why did the blue collar comedy tour guys why are those movies so successful why is kevin james such a successful comedian because they always portray bottom barrel type of people like people who have shitty jobs like security guard and blah 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 they're very easy to relate to it's very Mm non-threatening yeah it's interesting because it's i think what happens if you go to if you go to india you'll see bollywood cinema is Mm -hmm. the way it is because it's escapism it's escapism cinema 
Mm-hmm. A lot of poor people go to Bollywood movies to see people living rich lives and having no limitations. Mm-hmm. And those people aren't interested in watching shows about um, when they see shows where people are struggling and from the same background. It activates all the anxiety and stuff that they feel in their real lives. Right. And a lot of people are just looking for escape. But I totally understand um, what you're talking about in the context of comedy. Mm -hmm. If you're doing like a Roseanne Barr thing or like a Kevin James thing or like a Louis C.K. thing, um, they help um, knit together a community and make people feel like they're not alone in their Their struggle, uh, their their plight. Yeah. And I think that that's why it works, but not for, not so much for drama. I don't think that the that working class people want to see Rocky Balboa struggle and and go broke unless he beats up Apollo Creed at the end. You know, right? <laughs> well, that's <laughs> part of the depressing to depressed people. Part of the like <laughs> the American mentality, like the American dream, is that like the little guy can be the big guy, right? Like who said the underdog can become the big dog at the end which is just such a, a terrible trope to overuse in every single movie. Happens sometimes. Yeah. But the vast majority of the time, it's it's a rigged game. So the rich, their kids are the ones that break through. <laughs> Sorry, take, guys. Want to take a short break on that depressing note? Okay. Yeah. Water time. You always get the hunch. Yeah. Well, it's because my, my, uh, my earphones are not long enough, so I can't sit that comfortably. I have to be, do this. That's it's fine. I'm used to the hunch now. Now I need to. Now I need to have the hunch. Six months. We're on episode twenty. Oh, it's about a hundred. <laughs> it's not. It's, I think that. Uh, like for me what's weird is that when you take a step away from doing music videos they already have an established audience and so you kind of ride on the coattails of a lot of like bands that have been hustling up um, listeners whenever you try to do something that's like on your own whether it's like starting a, a podcast or like your own tv show or whatever you're starting from zero and you're basically just trying to entertain your friends and hope that they like it enough that they turn other people onto it which is slowly happening with this like each episode branching out with different guests is sort of expanding the audience each time yeah a little bit and i mean for my part the the reason that i do it is has nothing to do with like turning something into like a big successful type of deal i'm just trying to i find that like much like when you, if you, uh, back in the days when everybody was first getting into the internet and starting to blog, um, it was really helpful for a person to have a blog from um, the point of view of just organizing your own thoughts and getting into the habit of speaking publicly hmm. and taking a stand and being able to like calcify um, your ideas in some way. Like, you know how you can get into a habit over time of just being a wandering generality if you're not careful? Like, you never really even spent time meditating on, um, on you know, whether you like the clothes that you wear or whether you like the city that you're living in or whether you like, you know, blank, right? Sometimes things just become habit. And I think that 
there's been a large push towards mindfulness uh, in the last like five years or so in internet culture and stuff. And just having people like wake up to the idea that this is kind of the golden age of humanity. And there's like, we're on the cusp if we want it. And if we can figure out a way to get along with one another of being able to have the most prosperous and fair society that's ever existed. Um, you know, it's kind of fucked up that like Canada is a nation that's been around for a hundred years or whatever. Um, North America has, hasn't been attacked apart from September 11th and apart from like since the colonization of the place, mm-hmm. um, the, the country's been relatively f- f- free from, um, that kind of like outside attack mm-hmm. that plagued Europe for since time eternal, right? Where you have still, to worry about does, yeah. an invading army that's going to come in and burn down all your houses and destroy everything. Right. You know, it's, it's kind of. It's it's tenuous, but like it would be nice if if um, that trend like spread worldwide and humans competed economically instead of having to like blow one another up every two generations. I don't know. Two generations? Has there been one? Did I miss a generation where no one got blown up? Yeah, I'm. I don't. I'm kind of struggling to put it into words, but it's like I think that it's weird that we have so many people that are growing up nowadays that you could you could conceivably grow up in North America and never have an instance of violence come into your life there there's definitely got to be people out there that have never seen a fight have never been attacked have never um been robbed like must be nice it's weird right like you go back 500 years and that would just be an impossibility like you would have seen at least a baby die in your neighborhood and your immediate family. You would have seen um, gory injuries that just come from like doing subsistence farming. Like somebody accidentally gets kicked by a horse and then they die. You think, know? think about our friend Jerome, you know, he, mm-hmm. before he left Jamaica, he saw a dead body, mm-hmm. you know, before he came here and he came here pretty young, you know, before he was uh, an adult. Yeah. And, you know, we were, we were talking about our childhoods one day and the, the stark differences of like, you know, uh, everything, inclu- uh, including just like, um, you know, exposure to violence and violent behavior and the the sort of norm normality of violent behavior in your community just how different it was and how different it's it you know as a canadian i'm very very privileged i've seen violence before and i've had violence perpetrated on me Mm -hmm. in the city even i've been randomly beat up by a a man in the middle of the night you know who's just like drunk and looking for a fight yep and you know in my hometown there's a lot of like violent kids but i've never never seen anyone get killed i've never seen a dead body lying in the street on my way to school we haven't seen a pandemic yeah we which have... used to be commonplace you know a, a pestilence would sweep through or like the crops wouldn't grow one year and everybody starves to death all of these things used to be commonplace yeah in the world and they're becoming less and less uh, more and more isolated yeah like, they still obviously go on but really makes you appreciate living here uh, and i mean just not taking it for granted uh, just, you know, if, if we were talking that same night, we were talking about like pests, even just like the idea of like how we've controlled our pests and we've controlled like the wildlife in North America. I was just like, you know, as a kid, I had to deal with spiders and centipedes, 
both of which are like non-poisonous and not mm-hmm. looking to hurt me. He's like, yeah, I used to wake up and there'd be a scorpion on the wall. Yeah. Just waiting over my bed. And a couple times when we were going to school, we had to turn back because there was a crocodile on the road <laughs> and no one knew how to get rid of it. It's like that's a that's a very different childhood and I like just to think of the differences, those kind of subtle differences in just the wildlife you experience and how like close they can get to you and how poisonous and deadly they potentially are. Um, you know, it's we have it so so good here. It's, it's a very safe, calm place. I do see what I, I see what you're saying. Like, if only the the rest of the world. That's that's a fucking bullshit. It's just <laughs> it's just an interesting kind of tipping point. Like, it's I I think that the one way to feel is that there's this this dread that's looming in people's minds where it's like things have gotten a little bit too quiet that means you know we're on the precipice of something so whether it's peak oil or climate change or the russians you know something is going to spoil the party they keep thinking and what i feel like the conversation needs to shift to is like because we have been lucky enough to be born in this century with these amount of privileges, what are we going to do with it? You know, are you going to, are you going to um, be able to look at your grandkids and say like, this was the absolute best I could have done with the opportunities that I was given. Ooh, you know, cause one. there was like, there's like 4 billion people on the planet, right. That wish they w- were born here and wish they had all the opportunities that we do. Right. And what are we doing with it? You know, well, making music, Making music, making podcasts, talking about things, you know, being, drinking good coffee, yada, yada, yada. I'm just, you know, I'm just posing the question, right? Like, because if, like, for me, I'm just wondering, you know, whether we have what it takes to, you know, start, like I say, the Star Trek future. And I'm wondering, like, can I do more to to encourage that to happen? Am I doing more to bring, like, people together? Am I doing more to, like, inspire and... Because I feel like that's kind of the role of the artist, right? Traditionally, is that they were the 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 shaman is supposed to like be the spiritual drive of the tribe, right? Like they remind you about tradition and about future and about the stories that are supposed to motivate people into doing great things, right? But then your art must do great things. Mm. Yeah, you know that puts a lot. I'm not saying that's an unjust burden to put on art, but it's a very large burden to put on art. And I'm yeah. not so concerned. Uh, I'm not so convinced, rather, that that every artist is interested in taking on that challenge. Mm. It's it's not for everyone. Um, like, obviously, the culture... Well, I was going to say the culture embraces that artist, but that's not necessarily true. Like, many of those artists are not embraced until after their time. Mm-hmm. Mm. Only in retrospect do you start listening to those people. But well, or just sometimes people are ahead of their time. Like, I mean, there's a poet, John Berryman, and I'm not going to say that he wasn't big for his time. He won the Pulitzer Prize. He was quite a large figure in American poetry. But there's this resurgence of his work that's coming back right now. And he was more or less, you know, invisible, except for a few avant-garde keeners for the last 20 years or so. But, you know, they're re-releasing his work with new forwards and new critical essays and all this. And, you know, you have to kind of step back and think why the sudden interest in John Berryman after he's been, you know, seemingly relevant for the last 20 years or so. And, you know, so I go back and I'm revisiting the work. And 
you know, one, it's it's just sad. It's just like through and through a very sad body of work. Hmm. Two, it's incredibly fragmented. And three, the protagonist, Henry, of his major body of work, The Dream Songs, is a completely splintered psyche, mm-hmm. you know, which makes me think, okay, well, why in 2014 is this attractive to us again? And so I'm kind of putting the characteristics of the poem together and seeing if I can use it as a metaphor to describe the culture. And it's like, well, yes, like things are kind of wounded right now. There is a kind of deep, pervasive sorrow that runs through the culture at large. Fragmented are, psyche is a good... Yeah. yeah. And a splintered sense of self. Like, there's, we've got pieces of ourselves in everything. I'm an artist, but I'm also, like, this deeply shamed, impoverished person who doesn't have food in his fridge, but then I have to contradict myself right away and say, how can I be this deeply impoverished person if I'm living in the Western world? Right. And so it's like, there's no sense of self. Like, everything is in constant... Um, contradiction of itself and so there's no peace for the self and i think you're saying something earlier when we were talking about kids content about being too politically correct and being too afraid to take hard stances on things and maybe not like politically correct but almost like socially correct oh whoa Uh, that was an interesting one go ahead it was a low feedback yeah that was a (laughs) that was a low one force field um, but being, you know, that that dilemma of self of saying, well, I'm impoverished, I am poor by standards of the environment I'm living in, I am below the poverty line, I am not doing as well as like the majority of people. Um, but then in that same moment, questioning your 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 place to be upset about that when there's people who are doing so much worse than you are, um, that's a very difficult position to be in mm-hmm. where you're simultaneously feeling bad um about your life and then also feeling bad about that th- the fact that you feel bad about your life yeah you know what i'm saying yeah it's a very uh, i go through that on a daily basis where i'm just like you know my life sucks but how much does it really suck mm-hmm. and my feeling about it is i always try to psychoanalyze and say like where is this voice coming from is this coming from inside me or is this coming from like family members or is it coming from the media? Like where is this, this, um, this conscience, this little, little devil on the shoulder that's saying like, you should be making more money or like you should, you should be embarrassed at your apartment or cause they're not concerns of, of people who are in other countries, right? Like the, the if you have real concerns about actual sustain, actual, um, actually being able to like find food and stuff right Mm -hmm. like you're you're not living in a place that's anything like toronto you know like you can't starve to death in toronto there's food banks and things and you know if you got too weak you could just walk into a hospital and they would feed you you know like there's there's the, the the chances of like imminent death aren't aren't really real here, but we still feel like they exist. We still feel like there might be a way to slip through the the cracks and end up. And I, I would say that the, it would it would be negligent to say that there's not to say that there aren't people who like slip through the cracks and like despite the fact that there's access to services in a place like Toronto that they're like mentally troubled or or uh, unaware of them. They're uninformed. Yeah, one hundred percent. Like if you're mentally ill you can fall pretty far, but even mentally ill people are somehow able to survive sleeping outside in the wintertime and stuff. Like it's a, it's a well, crazy. Well, many don't. Yeah. Yeah. 
Maybe, but I, I understand the sentiment you're making. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I'm just trying to, to describe the, the the difficulty in, like, falling to the bottom. Yeah. Is, is, we, uh, we don't know how to be poor in this culture, even mm-hmm. though we are poor. Like, yeah. if you look at, you know, developing countries, you know, first of all, the classes aren't divided in such drastic ways. Yeah. So like you kind of do the same thing as everyone in your community. Right. Like you're all similarly poor, mm-hmm. but we're not similarly poor in Toronto. Mm-hmm. And we all are kind of like behaving like we all, not all of us, but many of us, especially the working artists are poor, but have this like idea that we're rich because we've been raised that way. Mm-hmm. And like, when I look at our parents' generation, like, they weren't as poor as we were. Right. Like, a lot of them, by the time they're our age, had already, like, bought houses, had professions and all these things. Married, children. Yeah, you know. we're often living in the suburbs. Like, you know, I, I get really worried when I think about our generation from, like, a financial perspective and just, like, retiring. Because I don't know if that's an option that's, gonna, that's going to be available to, yeah. to people in our age category home ownership is just another thing too where if you want to live in a place where you're culturally culturally connected like toronto um home home ownership for our generation is pretty much a non-issue like you might as well get that idea out of your head because it's only going to depress you because uh especially if you're if you're in this class like you know working as an artist or just kind of working low-level jobs the the cost of rent is going to precipitate you not saving money Right. You're not going to be able to save money, and you're never. And the raising cost of houses means that by the time you've made enough to buy a house now, it will cost three hundred thousand dollars more. Mm-hmm. The, you know the rising property values. There's no real winning, and so the only um, the only way to win is to leave where you feel culturally culturally connected and go to where it's cheap. Yeah, but that's a very hard thing for for our generation to do, right? Like we're, we're so connected. The internet has created this sort of like constant connection that the idea of going and buying an acre and putting like a storage container and building a house in it is uh, a fringe idea. And like, but that's a really great solution. If you want a house and you want your own piece of property, there's plenty of places in Ontario where you can yeah. go buy an acre for next to nothing. You could buy a storage container for next to nothing but it's and a build a house. Life. But it's a lonelier life. You're culturally disconnected from the people that you love and respect and care about working with. It's that like we're being forced to choose. It's either do you want to be poor and live in a place where you feel stimulated or do you want to live within your own means but be miles away from anything? Mm-hmm. That's a terrifying prospect. It's interesting that you've fixated on the ownership part of it, though, because I kind of feel like every place that I've rented, I treat it as if it's my own house, you know. But ultimate, ultimately, that's an illusion. Uh, like uh, a, so, a landlord could come around and say that he needs to live here and kick you and Jessica out, and then he can't though. There's there's really strong laws. And but stuff. they do that all the time. That's yeah. what happened to me at Manning. Mm. Bodhan f- found a way. He said, "I got to move in there." And then, you know, he kicked us all out and then he re- repaired the place and sold it, right. sold it for over a million dollars. Like, you know, he pushed us out. I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure that that's illegal. Like they, they've been. Well, having, if the landlord wants your apartment to live in, yeah. you're out. It's, it's a loophole though. And if you find out that they didn't actually do that, they just, they were using it as an excuse to flip the real estate, then you can get them in trouble. Hmm. I, 
it's but hard does, to get does rid that, of people. Does that replace your house? No. Like, get if I, if I were to get my old landlord in trouble, he has already sold the house. It's the deal's done. He yeah. took it from me. He took what was like you know essentially yeah. my home for four years. What I was going for is like I'm not trying to undermine the the stress that you're describing. I'm I guess what I, I was going to say is that you're going to feel that way regardless. Like if you were in a different financial situation and you had gotten a mortgage, you'd mm-hmm. still be paying that $500 a month or $700 a month or $1,000 a month. Right. And you'd end up paying that house off two times over by the time the mortgage was done. Right. It's, it's a very similar headspace to be in. Like there's still bills to pay, you know, on top of like getting the 25, 50 grand you need for the down payment. You right. Know? It's a, uh, but I mean, just own ownership is something that, especially in our culture has just become like synonymous with life. Like owning a house is, what everyone did for a very long time it was like buying a house having a family or not even having a family per se as um propagating and having kids but yeah. finding a place to settle down with the person you, you love and like owning that place and making it your own and having that sort of idea that no one could come and touch it and like no one can come take it from you you have a space it's where not, it's that's an illusion too right you have yeah. to pay your property taxes every year otherwise the government takes your house and you're out in the same um i think that the other thing that's illusionary is that we've convinced ourselves and internalized the idea that in order to be an adult you have to move out and you have to buy your own place and and, and uh in other cultures that's just not the case like the, the married couple like lives with the parents until like they're actually on can afford like a second house yeah, you know, like it's weird that we have this compulsion that we need to break up our families and, and homestead. That was the that was really the the thing about my uh, my grandmother who was also Jewish. She had those those this mentality of you shouldn't leave home until you get married. You get married and then you leave. Like you you court someone, you live at home until you're like it's a clean break. It's one time you leave and you go off and you. It's only to build your own home. That's yeah. the way that she sort of like hoped that we'd live. But, you know, in our generation, it's just both the parents and the kids can't wait for 18. Like the parents are sitting around going, oh, 18 is going to come around and we're going to get our space back. We're going to be able to go golfing and drinking and like <laughs> hang out. And the kids are just like, I'm I'm sick and tired of living under the oppressive rules of my parents. 18 is just like this freedom ledge where you can just jump off and like cut and ties it, to your isn't family. It funny how uh, how nicely it fits into that consumerism cycle, right? Like, because you need to get your own furniture and all all this other independent stuff that you need to buy in order yeah. to. And don't ignore the fact that they're calling our generation the boomerang generation. Yeah. We all left at eighteen and went back at twenty five. Yeah, you know? yeah. It's yeah. More and more, uh, I see my friends ending up back at home wondering what went wrong and that it's that that's a huge that could be a huge blow to your confidence too where like this culture puts so much stress on like being your own person like you know being successful and working hard and to think that like you could do that and still fail and end up back at home which you left because it felt oppressive and it felt like not you it felt like you needed to do your own thing and you failed that's a huge blow to anyone's confidence who ends up in that place mm. like big just, time yeah. yeah it's hard to crawl i've been in that place where i had to like move home 
and you know like spend some time in my hometown again and just the feeling of despair even though i had only lived there two years prior and it really wasn't that bad the feeling yeah. of despair of like oh i'm back where i started i've fallen steps behind it's going to take me forever to and rebuild my you life come across you have to to explain that narrative a little bit you know because they always want to have that that story to go along with her like oh yeah yeah how you doing what are you working blah 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 it's like <laughs> i don't want to get into that it's a whole can of worms jimmy from college jimmy from high school <laughs> yeah i didn't go to my uh my uh, high school reunion i didn't know that they did they those were real that, i thought I that was a tv plot device it was like a 10-year reunion i was like fuck that i don't want to go to that how do you yeah with the volume of school with the volume of like kids in schools could they even like really do that in toronto like do toronto high schools have reunion well like if reunions if you're not still friends with the people you went to high school with and like you haven't like looked at everyone on like there's nothing you're going to get at a high school reunion that you're not going to get on Facebook. Right. It's made it's made them obsolete because really the only thing that seems in all TV shows and movies where there's ever been a reunion it seems like the only goal of most people is to go and either lord their great <laughs> lives over everyone else or find all the dirt of like people who have gotten fat or like you know aren't together anymore or, like yeah. are doing really shitty and like second divorce. Yeah. That's just, that's, you can just get all that on the internet and be done with it. It's oh, true. There's no, there's no happy high school reunion plots in, no. in movies and television. People, people go, it's always about, like, I gotta face my old bully, or I gotta see yeah. whether or not, like, the person I hated is, like, a or fat Or I gotta find the shit. girl that got away. Yeah. Why, where's the high school reunions where everyone just gets together and goes, remember how awesome high school was? And they just party. It is, it is a funny kind of thing, turning 33, because you do see high school girlfriends kind of come out of the woodwork where they, you see them, you know, send you a message out of nowhere and you go like, Oh, I see what's going on here. You haven't been a husband yet. (sighs) Knocking on the woodwork. I'm sure it works the other way too. I'm sure like, you know, Maybe if you didn't have a girlfriend, you were sitting around, yeah, you'd yeah. be like, "Oh, I wonder what Jenny's up to, or yeah, I wonder yeah, what totally, like blah blah totally. blah's up to." Yeah, like, I don't mean to sound it like it's just gender thing. It's, yeah, it's just a uh, a way of life. Yeah, and well, like I, a circle of life. Facebook has made that aspect very <laughs> creepy, where like there's almost there's a there's a certain feeling of like leaving high school where you're like, if I don't want to. I don't have to associate with any of these people anymore. I can just go off and do my own thing. And the idea in the back of my mind that like, maybe they're like, not, not that I'm paranoid. People are very interested in my life, but the, the (laughs) idea is that I didn't want to associate with those people anymore. And then someone like messaged me on Facebook and being like, Hey, how's it going? What's up? Or is even just like kind of looking at my Facebook to see what I'm up to is a weird thought to me. Yeah. It's like, imagine you're somebody's hero. Oh, I, I doubt that (laughs) very strongly. (laughs) Yeah, maybe I'm a hero to someone, but you're a hero to me. Oh, thanks, Ben. Like, can you? The the grass is always greener, right? There's probably some schlub that you went to school with that was your rival, and they played by all the rules. They went to university, and they ended up boomeranging and getting back in their parents' house. They can't find a job as a lawyer or whatever, and they're like, motherfucker. Or they're successful. And they're having like a quarter life crisis where they go like, I got everything I was supposed to get and I'm still miserable. I had a, I had a great, um, like my, my elementary school bully who was like, you know, football captain kind of guy, really into sports, um, was very insecure, always talked about getting laid and blah, 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 who was the guy who I feared most, who was like the biggest, 
um, threat to me for like my entire childhood where mm-hmm. I I couldn't feel comfortable being me who like really liked computers and like playing instruments where it was just like this guy always, you know, through like called me a homo and blah, blah, blah and would like beat me up. And then like a few years I was back at home visiting uh, for Christmas and I walk over to the old uh, grocery store and he's standing behind the meat counter He's gained a ton of weight. He looks really <laughs> unhappy. Um, and he's he's desperately vying for me to stay and talk to him. He, yeah. I, I see him. He's like, oh, man, how's it going? How's it going? He, like the, the sort of change in his attitude where now suddenly he's sort of desperate for my temporary friendship because he's just in such a bad place. It was a weird feeling to That's be like, weird. I hated you so much when I was a kid and now I see you and I'm just like, kind of want to give you a hug and yeah. like have a drink with you and see what's up and like wh- how you've ended up here. Mm-hmm. Even though I sort of like know why you ended up here. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, you relied too much on um, being the cool kid rather than. There's a Buddhist idea about how everybody is the same consciousness. We're just born in different bodies. I like that. Mm-hmm. I like that he ended up behind a meat counter. Just, just wanted to throw Specific- that out there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, that just seems like a good profession for a high school bully to gain some weight and get a job, and just yeah, cut meat. Just cut meat. You're you know? already a meat head, right? Boom. <laughs> <laughs> he was taught. He was pounding meat earlier. Oh god. Well, we've <laughs> all we've all pounded our fair share. Oh, uh, plenty. So we're getting close to the two-hour mark. Shoehorn in. Uh, why don't you tell us about your new album there, Ben? Da, da, da. Uh, oh. Can we try and harmonize here? Huh? Oh, in late. <laughs> Doesn't bode well for the music. <laughs> um, it's, well, you know, there's no, there's no uh, release date yet, but mm-hmm. the album, We Really Mean It, uh, we're hoping to release it January or February of right. 2015. We just released our third single off the album, The Last Generation of Love, uh, that premiered on Exclaim and in Rock Photo in Sweden. Sweden? Yeah. Ah. And um, it'll be a groove, Daddy. Yeah, groove. Groove. You know, maybe. Mm. (laughs) I hope so. We're looking at March. Nothing is scheduled yet, though. Cool. Yeah. Killer. That's cool. Where'd you, uh, where did you record? How, how was the recording process? We recorded at Candle, uh, Candle Studio with Josh Carodi. Right on. Uh, we're still recording. We go in on the 8th to do our last... Uh, there's just like a bunch of backups and a few guest musicians that need to get thrown on. Right. So we have one more day of recording. Uh, it's been really good. Um, we started in, I guess, uh, April... So oh. a, yeah, it's been a bit of a bit of a process. Yeah, yeah, we've just been doing like a few songs every few months, just you know, financing it in that respect. We've already covered how expensive it is to be an artist. Yeah, and um, no, it's been really great. You know, um, I don't know what else to say. Other than <laughs> I, I've been really enjoying the process, and it's great to be able to be working with just really talented individuals. I know that's like the cliche, yeah, like but VH1 it, thing to say, but it is really fun to work with talented people. And it, yeah, it's been really interesting to see the sound evolve with like having seen you play solo and the like sort of rawness of like just you and a pair of drums to, to like f- see how you figured out how to like grow that sound and like sort of change and like feed off of the energy of these people you're playing with. Yeah, yeah. Even the first time I saw you play with Reinhardt's and like just doing a little like backup percussion and uh, weird vocal additions was just like 
felt like a different thing almost, you know, like it, uh, it maintained that same uh, feeling, but you could start to see like all these different things, hear all the different things that could go over it. Oh, I'm excited to hear it. And we're definitely yeah, really just going to drop a song in right here. No, do it right here. <laughs> <laughs> Editing note, Jazzy. So you have a single out that we can overlay for the exit music? We have four singles out. Killer. We'll put one at the beginning. To me. Yeah, I'll grab them tonight. We'll put them at the beginning and at the end. I feel like this is a pretty good place to uh, to call it. I'm really sweaty it's and great. hot. It's great to call it now. I'm going to give one shout out if this gets played before Halloween, which I think I'll try to do. Um, everybody go watch the original remake with Donald Sutherland Evasion of the Body Snatchers. I saw that last night for like the first time. That's a fucking killer movie. <laughs> right Holy on. shit. Have you seen it? No. It's great. No. It's, it's like not cheesy at all. It's like artistically shot. It's It's got awesome performance. Jeff Goldblum is in it. Fucking huh. um, Leonard Nimoy. Um, it's got awesome practical effects. It's got um, subtle uh, social commentary about like uh, the Red Scare and communism and stuff. It's, it's a great movie. Holy shit. Is there a place to, we can go see this or are you just saying in general? Get it on DVD, download <laughs> it, whatever. Right, right. It's, it's, uh, it should be definitely like put up there with you know, American Werewolf and Exorcist and stuff for everybody's like yearly Halloween viewings. Yeah. Cool. Right on. Taking that. I would say if it, uh, if if we were doing this last week tonight, an interesting horror phenomenon where I guess this is the new um, the new like dark side of the rainbow for our generation is uh, the Shining forwards and backwards <laughs> at, at the same time. Oh, God. So they've overlaid 50-50 the Shining playing from the very end in the what very about beginning. The dialogue? Uh, I. I'm not sure. That's actually a really good question. Whether or not they've maintained be both, if they had the dialogue, both right. audio tracks. Why? Why is that interesting? A- apparently, <laughs> apparently, there's. I, I mean, with Kubrick's work in general, there's a lot of theories and like wild accusations about what he was getting at and like technical things that he was trying to pull off. But apparently, most of it, which is hogwash. Yeah, it's hogwash. <laughs> but apparently, in some in some significant way, if you watch the shining forward and backward, the scenes. And the the it's a weird. They line up. They match yeah, up certain game. actions. Yeah, like a palette. It works so both ways. So what's the dead center of the movie? <sighs> what happens there? That's the part that I would be exclusively interested in finding out about. Well, I would. Yeah, I guess that's. If you think thinking about the movie, that's uh, not much going on right dead center of the movie. So as he's going crazy, it definitely works with the themes in that it's a ghost movie, and it would kind of look ghostly to ghost the images over the thing. Right. It was someone said someone said that The Shining is a movie meant to be watched forwards and backwards, and someone someone took it very very literally, and they're doing it at the Magpie tonight. Uh, so you can't see this in the past, but I guess if you have a copy of The Shining, do that and, up, and then another one. And then you somehow put them into the, I don't know, figure it out, download it. It probably exists out there. And Jesus Christ, if I get this up on uh, before, what is it, Thursday that the end of T.O. Silver Dollar, Death of T.O. Death of T.O., everyone go to that. That'll be fun. That'll be fun. You're going, right? Uh, Yeah, probably. I'm going to try and make it. Oh, buddy. I do work work early the next day so I, I'll probably leave early but I will I do want to check some of it is out. there tickets at the door or do we have to buy them in advance <sighs> it's very a very popular show I last couple of years it's been completely slammed but anyways that'll be fun yeah thanks for coming Ben thanks for having me boys it was a lot of fun yeah. come back sometime we'd love to two hours like that two hours like that bye guys bye <laughs>
Ooh. Oh. 